Morning. Morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Great. Hey, my name's Ty. I'm one of the pastors here. It's an absolute joy to be with you, each and every one of you. And if you're joining us online, thank you so much for that as well. A couple announcements before we get started. Announcement number one, uh, we are having our second annual fall festival on Halloween, which will be October 31st. Is anyone here last time we did this? Uh, it was crazy, right? We had no idea how many people would show up, and it was like thousands of people showed up here on the property, and so we're like, hey, we got to do this again. Uh, and so this is where uh, we can do something together as a family to love our community well and draw our community in. That way we can tell them that we're a, a people that are generous, a people that love them, a people that uh, care about them. And so what we need to do together is uh, I heard that we need, to, uh, we need everyone to bring in candy. We need 100 tons of candy. No, I was like, now how much was it? A thousand pounds. That's a half a ton, right? That's so much candy. So many dentists are going to be so happy about this. So anyway, uh, just keep bringing in candy when you go to Costco, Smith's, Target, Walmart, whatever. Buy yourself a bag and buy us a bag if you don't mind. Uh, We need tons of candy, so bring it in. We also need volunteers. Uh, If you remember last year, if you didn't, that's okay. We line cars up and you decorate your car. It's like trunk or treat style. And then we, uh, you dress up like a theme or whatever you want to do. So make sure you do that. We have games, we have set up, we have tear down. There, there is a job for you on October 31st during our fall festival. So please don't miss that opportunity. For more information, go to Grace Point Vegas, or you can sign up out at Centerpoint or scan the QR code right there. It's on your seat back in front of you. And then the second thing is this, our GPS, which are Grace Point students, formerly known as uh, 608, they're having a garage sale on October the 8th from 6 to uh, six to two. I'm sure you've got a lot of really great gently used things that uh, you need to get rid of. And so this is a great way to clean out that garage or clean out your attic or clean out your, uh, your closet or whatever. Hey, don't bring things to us that you want us to throw away. Am I right, Mo? <laughs> like just, just like, like, hey, we're going to put this in the trash anyway. It's like, you know, it's a half used candle. No, uh, bring in some good stuff so we can sell it. And that way it's for our students to go to camp. And so that Friday before, which would be October the 7th from eight to four, or eight to five, uh, you can drop that stuff off, and if you need to coordinate that, you can coordinate that with Mo Hader. It's mo at gracepointvegas.com. Sound good? All right, let's get started. Um, my dad is a really good man. If any of you have met my dad, my dad's a really good dude. Uh, not, he's not a Christ follower. My mom and dad are not Christians yet, but I, I, I pray and hope for them, and you guys can pray for them as well. Uh, but he's just a really good man, and my dad has got a saying for everything. And we're from the country. We're from Kentucky, and there is a saying for everything, but there was this one phrase, this one saying that my dad would say over and over and over. He pounded it in my head as a kid, and I am so grateful. This one saying, this one phrase has guided my life and comforted my life all of my life, and this is the one thing he would say over and over and over. It was this. Life's not fair. I love it. It's like one of the greatest things you can tell people around. You want to teach your kids something, right? Life is not fair. I remember this story. I heard this story in Kentucky, and I was like, man, this is just such a Kentucky story. Uh, There was a a kid. He went on an overpass, and he had a log chain, and he thought it'd be funny to pull a prank to where he kind of wrapped the log chain around a pole, and then wrapped it around his right arm, and then it had a hook on the end. He would drop it over the overpass, and when cars were going through there, like he wanted to scare them. Well, unfortunately, a semi-truck went through there and caught the hook and took his arm off. It's like, oh my gosh. And then the kicker of the story is they actually charged the truck driver with a crime. It's not fair, right? Got him for armed robbery. <laughs> wow. 
Why? Oh, my poor wife over here. But nonetheless, life's not fair, and we're continuing our series through the book of Esther. So if, you, if you've missed any of this, we've been doing it for about four. This is our fifth week now. If you've missed any of it, you can go to Grace Point Vegas. I'm sorry. You can go to gracepointvegas.com and uh, watch or listen to it there. You can also go on YouTube, or you can just read the first few chapters of it. Uh, just a couple of reminders. Remember, this book uh, is, is very different than other books of the Bible. Uh, in this book, there's no mention of God, no mention of prayer, no mention of worship or temple or anything like that you would really see, especially in the Old Testament. It's like God is absent from this book is what it feels like. But the main theme of this book is God's providence. And if you remember from week one, it's kind of like God has two hands. He has this visible hand where we can see his activity and what he's doing and miracles and all that. We can sit through the Bible and see it maybe in life as well. But then God also has his providential invisible hand where he's working everything together behind the scenes. We can't see it, but we have to be reminded it's for our good and for his glory. And so then last week, Pastor Tim preached a great message. He talked about Mordecai. Mordecai was in the right place at the right time. Remember Mordecai, he saw these two eunuchs, and these two eunuchs were like plotting to kill the king. And why are they plotting to kill the king? We don't know. Maybe because the king made them eunuchs. I don't know. That sounds about right. And so uh, they're plotting to kill the king. He tells Esther. Esther tells Mordecai or uh, uh, King Ahasuerus. And King Ahasuerus, they kind of investigate it and they realize, oh, these guys are going to do this. And so uh, they ended up uh, executing the two guys that plotted against the king. And the, the end of it, it said they wrote down Mordecai's name in a book. Very important. So we're going to pick up in chapter three. So if you've got a Bible, go to Esther chapter three. If you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need a Bible. We lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. Uh, so we have them in English and Spanish for free. They're up here and out there. And also version as an app on your phone. You can download it or put it up on the big screen. But we need to find out what's going on with Mordecai because Mordecai just saved the king's life. And so um, the, the next chapter should really have something in there for him. So let's see. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. Are you ready? Okay. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hami, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Wait, what? Why, why does it not mention Mordecai? Because this happens right after Mordecai, is what it says, after these things, this is what's next. I mean, there's an attempt on the king's life. Mordecai is the one that found out, saved the king. You think the king would reward Mordecai, but it says after these things, after these things they think is about five-year period. So a long time after. So the king has had plenty of time to mull over this, plenty of time to think, what would Mordecai like? Plenty of time for two-day Amazon shipping to happen. Plenty of time to go buy him a car, get him a camel, get him something like that, but nothing whatsoever. All you hear about is Haman, nothing about Mordecai, which just probably tells us that King Hasherus is so just absorbed with himself and so just all about him uh, that he doesn't do anything but give this next guy in line, Haman, a promotion. Life's not fair, is it? That probably explains most of your work situations. You're doing all the work. You're the one that comes up with all the creative ideas, and yet someone else takes the credit for it, and someone else gets a big promotion all that. If that's you, let's be reminded that God sees. Your boss may not see it. Your professor may not see it. Your teacher may not see it, or your supervisor may not see it, but God sees where you're at. Remember, it's providence right here. Uh, But right here, it doesn't say anything happens good for Mordecai. It goes straight to Haman, verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Amon, uh, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. 
Now, remember at the king's gate, that's where all the business happens. And so now Haman, there's like, I guess he's got a little throne. He's there. He's kind of propped up. When people come by, they bow down. And all of a sudden, here comes Mordecai. When Mordecai sees this, Mordecai just stands there like this. Everyone else is bowing down. Mordecai is looking at him, giving him the stink eye. I don't know what he's doing, but he is anti-bow down. He is just not going to do it. He's not bowing down to this guy. And then probably people are looking around because this is kind of standing out awkward. Like everyone's bowing down. He is not. They're like, hey, why, why is this guy defying the king's order and defying the honor that Haman has been set up to receive? Why is he doing that? All right, let's pause. Let's think through this. Don't answer out loud. Should Mordecai bow or not bow? To bow or to not bow? Should he be pro-bow or anti-bow? Like, what should he do? Well, some would say, no, he was right. He should not have bowed. We look in the Bible and the second commandment. Second commandment is basically you will, you will not worship any other gods besides the one true God. You will not bow any is what the second commandment tells us. And so uh, we, we think Ahasuerus, he set himself up as a God that people should worship. Maybe Haman was doing the same thing as well. And so maybe this was, this was where Mordecai was drawing his line, which is interesting. He would draw a line here. Because if you think back in Haman's life and then the Jewish life, he should have went back to Jerusalem when Cyrus decreed it. And this is the time of Passover. He should go to Jerusalem and not be in Susa, so he should go back there as well. And also, remember Esther's story. He was you know, advising her to don't tell anyone you're a Jew and just kind of like play along. He should have said, hey, you need to be like Daniel. And you should resist all the king's food and all the king's advances and all that goes on. And so now he draws a line here, but he does not bow. So some of us would say he was right not to bow. There's another thought, maybe you're in this camp of like, no, he, he should bow because it's a sign of honor to bow. In some cultures, people bow to one another because uh, that's just the right thing to do, respectful thing to do. If you've watched Cobra Kai, you bow to your sensei, am I right? This is what you do. In the military, you kind of, you, you show honor by a salute. You may, not, you may not respect the person, but you respect the stripes or the stars or the, you know, whatever that is. You, you respect the uniform and what it stands for. And so some people would say, you know what? He was wrong. He should have just bowed and went on with it. What does the Bible say about it? Nothing. <laughs> the, the, remember, the book of Esther just tells the story. It doesn't give us the moral implications of should or should not. And so... We, we just don't know. But nonetheless, he did not bow. Verse 3. So this is going to cause a stir. Then the king's servant, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's word would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Interesting. Pressure mounts for Mordecai to give a reason. Why he's not bowing. People are asking, why are you not doing it? Why are you not doing it? And finally, he's like, all right, guys, look, I'm Jewish. And he's pulling their religious exempt card. <laughs> like, like, not going to do it. I don't, I don't know if that's what he's doing or not. But uh, there's a little bit of a clue going on here. He finally reveals that he's Jewish. Remember the first couple of chapters? He's like, don't tell anyone we're Jewish. Don't talk about being a Jewish uh, person or anything like that. And now he's finally telling people, I am Jewish. Well, that's our huge clue. Why? Because there is a long-standing rivalry between Haman and Mordecai. Did you guys know this? Let's go down, let's go down uh, history lane real quick. Go back to verse 1 of our text. What does it say about Haman? What is he? 
He's a what? That's a fun word. It sounds like Papa. It's Agagite. He is an Agagite. What is Mordecai? Jewish. Are they friendly or not friendly? Not friendly. Uh, let's give you a little bit of uh, history on this. When Israel, remember when Israel came out of Egypt, the Exodus and all that, uh, there was a people group called the Amalekites. The Amalekites uh, attacked them in the wilderness and tried to destroy them. You can see that in Exodus around 17. Uh, and the Amalekites were kind of like terrorists. And what they would do is they'd come and flank them from the rear and pick off all the weak Israelites, like the, the children, maybe some older people, people with sicknesses or weaknesses or whatever, and they would just kill them. And as a result, God crushed the Amalekites and ordered that their memory be blotted out forever and ever and ever. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Later, Israel was looking around at other nations and like, hey, they got kings. We want a king too. And God's like, I'm supposed to be your king. And they're like, no, we want a king. And so they give him a king. And the first king, was his name was Saul. And so they give him King Saul. Now, King Saul, uh, Israel's first king, he was ordered to kill all the Amalekites, specifically the certain king, King Agag. And however, uh, you may remember that the, uh, they disobeyed uh, the Lord and he did not kill Agag instantly. And so the plot thickens here. Mordecai was introduced in chapter 2 of Esther as the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Who else was a Benjamite? Benjaminite? Sorry. Saul. And so uh, Mordecai is a descendant of Saul and Haman is a descendant of Agag. And so if you kind of do the history math on it, it's like if they, if they would have obeyed the Lord a long time ago, guess what would not be going on right now in this story? Agag would not be there. Or I'm sorry, Haman would not be there. He, he would not have existed. And so it's basically like Mordecai's past or the sins of the past are now coming to his presence. What happens to us sometimes, doesn't it? Generational sin or whatever that is, like it presents itself in consequences, if not careful, uh, to generations down the road. And so we, we see a little bit of this here. And so we have, we have tension building now. If you're, if you're a Jewish person reading this, you're like, oh, the story is, you know, is getting thick right now. So the, the, the plot is thickening. Verse 5. You still with me? Okay, verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. He was mad. Why, why is Haman so mad? Like, what do you think Haman's so mad for? Well, he, he was disrespected. I mean, he thinks like, hey, I am, I am to be bowed down to. This is what the king said. I'm a, I am a somebody, and he should bow down to me. And so Mordecai is like, no, nope, not, not going to do it. So he's mad about it. Verse 6, but he, that would be Haman, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they had, uh, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. It's a bit of an overaction, isn't it? Like, he had the authority to be like, hey, bring Mordecai over here, slap him around, you know, someone put a knee in his back, make him drop down to his knees, could have had him executed, he could have done whatever he wanted to. But he's like, no, who's he with? The Jewish people? Let's get rid of them all. It, it, it kind of would be like this. Imagine, imagine you were down at the Las Vegas Strip, and either the current president or the, the former president, whichever one of the two you don't like the most, were coming to town. And imagine you had a sign that says, hey, president, I don't like you, and I don't like your policies. And all of a sudden, here comes the president down through there with all the security guards and all that. You hear the screeching of the tires, and like, hey, 
let's go talk to this guy and they go, or gal. And they go there and they talk to you like, hey, they find out some information about you and then they just leave you alone. Then later on, you're at home and you turn on your news based on if you like the current president or the former president, which would be CNN or Fox. And you turn on your news. <laughs> I know you. You turn on your news and all of a sudden this breaking news come. There's this brand new law in America that they are going to kill, annihilate, and do away with all Scottish people or Irish people or African people or Pacific Islander people or whatever people that you are. They're like, hey, let's get rid of them all, all of them. That's exactly is what is going on. Is that crazy or what? It's exactly what's going on here. That is evil. I'll take it one step further. That is demonic. It's not, it's not right. It's not fair. We'd agree with that, right? I hope so. <laughs> Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So it says here they cast pur, which means they cast lots. Uh, you're going to hear a lot about this. There's a festival uh, at the end of the book, you'll find out about called Purim, which is kind of named after this. Uh, but what does it mean? Well, Ray Steadman in his book, The Queen and I, he really helps us understand in modern terms what this casting of lots means. He says this. He says, what a strange procedure. But the casting of lots to determine a lucky day on which to do something was common practice in the ancient Eastern kingdoms. It is very similar to the practice today of shooting dice in order to select a propitious day for some activity. When the records say they cast in month after month till the twelfth month, it doesn't mean they shook dice for a whole year in front of Haman. It means that every cast made stood for a different day. A cast was made for each day of the calendar as if a propitious number, we may say an evil omen or some sense of significance aroused by the throwing of the dice, turned up that that day was regarded as a lucky day. Thus, they went through 365 casts before, um, before called, I'm sorry, before they found the lucky day. When they found it, it was in the 12th month called the month of Adar. The whole process made it possible for Haman to go to the king and say, look, if you really want good luck in your life, if you want fortune to smile upon you, there's only one thing to do, get rid of these people. And so the rolling of the dice was an act of divination. The idea of seeking the gods or seeking spirits in order to find out what the best thing to do is. Now, it's not just superstition. You might be a lot like Michael Scott. You say, hey, I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. That's not that whatsoever. This right here is they, they are looking for the gods or the spirits to give them an answer. Now, we hear that and it's like Haman was not an atheist. You could look at Haman today and say, well, that guy is very spiritual. And when we use the word spiritual, we need to understand what we're talking about. There are some words, sometimes we can use the word spiritual and be a good thing. When it comes to uh, our love for Jesus, our adoration for Jesus, worshiping Jesus exclusively, we can say being spiritual is a good thing, right? But there's also an area where spirituality can be bad. And so kind of the key word, the buzz phrase now today is people will say, I'm not into church but I'm a very what? Spiritual person. What do they mean by that? If it's, if it's not Jesus, then what they mean by that, or how we can interpret that in our ears is uh, that this is not a good thing. It's, it's really not. Uh, why would I say that? Well, if you look in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are many gods. 
I know our Bibles say that there's only one God, but these many gods, when you see in the Old Testament, is a lowercase g. The lowercase g gods of the Bible, they are the fallen one-third of the angelic force. Remember that from the beginning? Uh, Satan was like, God, I'm going to take your throne. And God's like, nope, yeet, out of here. Kicks him out. And a third go with him, right? And so they are very powerful beings that typically hide behind religions or idols or ideas or monies or, or people or something like that. And so uh, we need to be very careful when we talk about spiritual things or when it comes to the occult, when it comes to religious-y, trinkety things that are not centered on Jesus. That is a very dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place to be. Why? Because the enemy wants nothing more to, than to still kill and destroy and deceive. He is an accuser. And so watch out, be careful, beware of other spiritualities that are not for Jesus, from Jesus, to Jesus, and by Jesus. Okay? I want to just kind of make that disclaimer. So anyway, they're, they're rolling the dice, rolling the dice, rolling the dice, and boom, they land on the certain date. And interesting enough, this certain date is 11 months away. So it's like they rolled the dice in January, like, oh, the dice landed on December, so they're going to wait 11 months uh, to make this happen. They're going to put the order out now, but they're going to make everyone suffer for 11 months before they end up just annihilating everyone. But the good news is this. Uh, when, the, when the lots, when the dice are rolled, God is the one superintending over all of that. That's what it says in Proverbs 16, 33. It says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it is every decision is from who? Lord. Again, that's God's invisible providential hand working things out. Look, look at verse 8 in Esther 3. Then Haman said to the king, now, now watch what he does here. You've probably seen children do this before. There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the providence of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. And so what Haman, it looks like he's doing, he's getting to the king first to do what? Control the narrative. You, you ever been around a couple of kids and they fight and they're trying to get to mom and dad first so they can tell their side of the story so they can kind of like control the narrative and make sure everything works favorable for them? It's exactly what Haman is doing. And what he is doing, he's telling some true things He's telling some truest things, and then he's just lying. I mean, look back at the text. He says, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed amongst the people. True, right? True. Their laws are different. True, somewhat. The, the, the laws are, are very different from the cultures around them. Although, if we look in Jeremiah, uh, right when they're going into exile, the prophet Jeremiah, uh, God speaking through him, said, hey, play nice when you go to other places, right? Remember he says, he says, care for the well for the city and plant houses and take wives and like be a good citizen. So he's like, play nice. So it's true-ish. And then it says this, they do not keep the king's law. Is that true or lie? truth or a lie? It's a lie. He says they, the, he says the people group, they're not obeying the king's law. No, no, no. It was Mordecai who did that. And so he's just lumping them all in together. He, he wants to get rid of all of them, so he lies to the king. And he didn't say Mordecai is the one not doing this. He says the Jewish people who Mordecai represents, like they're a problem. And matter of fact, king, they are of no profit to you whatsoever. Now that is a lie. You know how we know that? What is Esther? His wife is Jewish. He doesn't know at the time. Who saved him from a plot against his life? The king. Mordecai? 
So these Jewish people are a benefit to them, right? I mean, we can see that clearly in the text, but let's keep going. Verse 9, if it pleases the king, I like the way he's buttering him up. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they are destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it in the king's treasury. Now, 10,000 talents of silver, you know how much that is? It's about how much candy we need. It's 300 tons. <laughs> 300 tons. And, you know, that's, that's crazy. That's like roughly two-thirds of like the GDP of the Persian Empire right there. So like, that's, that's not right. So how's the king going to respond to this? The king has all the authority. He can listen or deny. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hammy, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. The signet ring is the power of eternity. Whoever has the signet ring has the authority. He just hands it over and says, do what you want to do. Terrible king, right? Shouldn't he ask questions? Like, tell me more about these people. And should, I should investigate this. But he doesn't. I would assume he doesn't uh, because, uh, remember, right before all this, he went to war, and, and war cost a lot of money. And so, like, the treasuries are probably a little bit empty. And so he's like, well, this is, this is financially good for us. And so let's just kill them all. So terrible king. Verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month in the edict. According to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the providence and to the officials of all the people, to every providence in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Rehashorus and sealed with the king's signet ring. And so it goes out to everyone. Imagine, imagine being Jewish in this moment. And you hear, it's January, and a letter comes out to everyone in everyone's language that everyone is coming to get you. Not now, but in December, you're dead. You can't run. You can't hide. We're coming after you. We're going to. You're, you're done. And, and, and with that, when this thing, the day this comes out is the day they're preparing for Passover. Now, if you're a Jewish reader and you read that, your clues are going off right now. You're like, wait, 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 wait. Is this connecting to the Exodus a little bit? Remember where God providentially takes care of them during the Exodus? Like, may, may, maybe so. We start to see God's hand moving here. So, like, this has got to be a scary moment for the Jewish people. Verse 13, letters were sent by courier to all the king's providences with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every providence by proclamation and to all the people to be ready for that day. So every language, every people will know there's no place to hide. Now, don't think that the king is sending an army and the police out to get them, which he's kind of doing, but it's basically like everyone in the land, go get them on this day. That's a mess. And like for a reward, you get all their stuff. And so if your neighbor is a Jewish person, you're like, oh man, on this day, we're like, we're like peeping out all their stuff. Like, oh, when we kill them, we're going to take their camel. That little dolly over there in that girl's hand, we're going to take that. Like, we're going to get it all. This, this is how sadistic this is. This is how messed up. And in, in like the verbs that is used right here, to destroy, kill, and annihilate, like they're, they all mean the same thing, right? This is bad. Verse 15. The courier went out hurried by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, 
And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Do you feel the coldness of that verse? Hey, let's kill all these people. Write it up. Make it happen. Signet ring. Boom. Can I get a 12-year-old scotch, please? I mean, like, that's, that's what's, I don't think that's scotch, but that's what's going on right there. Like, that's so cold. And then it says the city was thrown into confusion. Could you imagine be, reading that and you're like, wait a minute, these are good people. Like, I, I work with them and, like, they're my neighbors and, I, like, we have play dates with our kids together. They, these are really good people. Now, when we read this part of the, the story, it's this tension that leaves us with this feeling of that, that life is not fair. It, ma- it makes me want to scream, that's, that's, not, that's not fair. I mean, to Jewish people, could you imagine them living under this? As a matter of fact, uh, they still repeat this story during the Feast of Purim now, and like they will scream things out about Haman. So when they would get to the part of this in their readings year after year now, during this uh, dramatic reading of it, the congregation would, would yell out when Haman's name was said, may his name be blotted out, let the name of the ungodly perish, while boys with mouths would pound stones and bits of wood on which the odious name is written. And so this great hatred for Haman who would do this. Now, if you didn't know the rest of this story, it would leave us probably on a cliff of despair that God's people are going to die, all of them. Also, when you read a story like this, it, we, it kind of brings to light things in our own history. I don't know, I don't know if you've heard of Godwin's Law. You ever heard of God's, Godwin's Law? Anyone? Three of you, cool. It basically says any conversation on the internet, if long enough, will eventually result in someone making comparisons to Hitler. So you probably have gotten there somehow, some way. Anyway, well, this is the easy one here. You have a government-sanctioned attempt to exterminate Jewish people. If you look back in Nazi history, uh, on January 20th, 1942, a number of German officials gathered for what has become known as the Wannsee Conference. And they gathered in the suburbs of Berlin, sat in a room with plush chairs and nice wooden furniture, and agreed on the final solution for the Jewish question or the Jewish problem. And it was a mass extermination of a people group from all of Europe, and they wanted beyond. And it is said that after they had that meeting, which was a very short meeting, it was cocktail hour afterwards. Isn't that crazy? Now, as your pastor here, I want to pause and like, okay, how do we apply some of this? How do we look through some of this? When we look at Haman, I could sit here as your pastor and say, hey, we've all got a heart like Haman, don't we? In reality, we probably don't. Like we may be on the same road as Haman's heart at times, but that dude is like way down the road on what he's done. And so we, as humans who are sinful in nature, the Bible tells us, we may have evil intent in our heart, but this guy right here, he has the cultivation of complete evil and hatred in motion. And I would say we all struggle with the evil in our hearts sometimes. Am I right? You ever read Jeremiah 17? Talks about the heart being wicked. Who can understand it? It's like sick. But what I think is going on right here is that Haman... It's, it's demonic. Can we come up with any other conclusion from this? 
Isn't this what Satan would want more than anything, the great enemy of ours? He would want more than anything is like, if you can get rid of the Jews, you can get rid of Jesus. You know why? Because Satan's a smart dude. He knows that Jesus has promised to come through the Jewish people. He's like, right here, he's like, man, this is my plot. If I can get rid of these Jewish people, I can get rid of Jesus. And so I don't think, I don't think it's a heart condition going on with Haman. I think this is just my speculation. It's just, it seems demonic. Regardlessly, we hear the story of the Nazi Germany and, and, and this story as well, and we, we just screamed to ourselves, this is not fair. And when we say things like, this is not fair, we want to know, like, God, where are you in all of this? Why is something not happening to this? Now, we have to take a pause and ask ourselves a question is, why in our hearts, when we see things, we scream it's not fair? And here's the answer why. Because God is just. God is just. And when any wrongdoing happens, we have to know that God does not like that because he is just. And we are created in his image. And so there's a part of us as well. We don't like injustices. And what we see right here is it's, it's an injustice. It's not fair that people are singled out like this, that a whole people group are singled out and unfairly treated. It's not fair for others to be oppressed, to be suppressed, and or systematically exterminated. It's not been fair for indigenous Americans. It's not been fair for African or African-Americans. It's not been fair for Latinos, for women, for immigrants. It's not been fair for the unborn. It's not fair. And when we hear a story like this in the Bible, or when we look in the culture around us and we see oppression, suppression, or even extermination, the question we have to ask ourselves as people who follow God is, where is the hero of the story? And when we get to this point in the book of Esther, we don't see a hero. We can't see him plainly. And it looks like in the story that things are going from bad to worse. And yet when we zoom out and we see the whole story of the Bible, we see that God has promised to save his people. Even at times in our own life, it feels like, God, you've promised all these things. You promised you would not leave us, forsake us, but yet it feels like you have. Thomas Watson said this, God is to be trusted when his providences seem to run contrary to his promises. Even when we get this far in the book, if we have no other knowledge of later on that God could be promised, even when it looks like the situations are contrary to his, he can be trusted when it looks like things are contrary to his promises. I mean, we see Haman and think he is the most evil of all. He is worse than Hitler. And then you have King Idiot here just gives him the signet ring and says, hey, just go and destroy whoever you want to. That's a whole people group. That's fine. Who does that? But just as Haman goes to the king speaking his lies that appeal to his king's shallowness and selfishness in order to get the ring, so does our enemy. We have this great enemy, and there's this great enemy behind Haman, I believe. It's Satan. He's our greatest foe. And he comes to us. He whispers in our ear because he wants our signet ring as well. He wants our authority. And the whisper sounds something like this. God doesn't care about you. Trust yourself, not him. Following Jesus is too hard. You're going to mess it up, and you're just going to be filled with guilt and shame. So you might as well just do whatever you want to do anyway. And what it's like he's telling us is like, just give me the ring, and I'll make all your wildest dreams come true. Give me the authority of your life. I'll make things comfortable. I'll make sure you have great approval. I'll make sure everything is pain-free. I'll give you whatever you want. He's not, that, he's not that out front with it, but that's what it sounds like. 
Like Jesus will not satisfy you, so we'll, I'll show you other things that will satisfy you. Jesus will not take away your pain, so I'll show you other things that will take away your pain. The Holy Spirit is not that comforting, and so I'll give you other things that comfort you while you hurt and while you go through this tough life. Not much has changed with humanity in the past few thousand years. And to this day, the devil runs around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour with his deceptive tongue. He is our enemy, and what he wants to do is to steal everything good away from us. And we sit back and we think, man, that's just not fair. And then we look back and we think, man, life's just not fair. And if Christian, we got really honest, we'll look to God and we'll say, God, it feels like you're not being fair. But there has to be a part of us that is grateful that God's not fair. Right? We don't want him completely fair. Let me me flesh that out a little bit. Think about the parallels between Haman and Satan. Haman goes to the king and accuses the king about God's people. He said, these are bad people. These people, they don't listen to you. They won't trust you. They won't obey you. Satan does the same thing with us. He goes before God and says, hey, God, these people of yours, they're the worst. They're terrible. Don't you see what they're doing? Don't you see what they're saying? Don't you see how they are? We have an accuser. See, if our king, God, was like King Headache here, then we'd all be toast, right? Because like Satan's going to God and say, hey, these people are bad. And, and if, if our God was like King Ahasuerus, right, he'd be like, well, off with their heads. Smite them, smote them, whatever it is, done with them. And he'd sit back and kick a drink back. But here's the reality. Somewhat Satan is right about us. That's a weird thing for a preacher to say, am I right? When Satan accuses you and me He's, he's somewhat right. You know, we are worth being smited, smoted. I don't know the tense. We're, we're worthy of that, aren't we? Because of the wrong we have done, because of the wrong we do now, and because of the wrong in, in the future. And so when this happens, what Satan does, here's the trick of it all. Satan goes to God and says, hey, God, you see those guys right there? If you want to be just, then you've got to do something about it. You can't just let them off the hook. You can't just like let, let them get a pass on this. They sinned like me, Satan, and so you got to do something about it like you did with me. And so if you let them off the hook, God, you will no longer be just. So if God were fair to us, we would all be burning in hell right now. Am I right? No one wants to hear that. <laughs> Let's pray and go home. Football's on. And so God, God is unfair to himself. Satan has to be like, God, you can only be just or you can only be the justifier, but you can't be both with these people, with us. So if you're just God, you've got to burn them all up. But if you're a justifier and save them, then God, you are no longer worthy of worship. Is this making sense? I want to make sure I tie this in. God, if you're just, then we deserve death. God, if you're going to be the justifier, you're going to let them off the hook well, then you're no longer just and you're no longer worthy to be worshiped. What a dilemma that God is in now with us. It's like we put God in a dilemma. What what do we do with that? The good thing about our God is he can do both. Let me show you. Romans chapter three, slide over to Romans three. Let's let's spend just a, a minute or two there. Romans three, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what all means? 
Is that you? It is. Don't be like, nah, man, that's my wife. Nope. <laughs> that's my husband. Nope. You. So all sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, there's a word there, by his grace as a gift. So we're made right with God by a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God... So how did this happen? How do we get justified? How, how is God going to be just and get, get us justified? Whom God put forward as a propitiation. He, he died death in our place. His blood covers us, the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, meaning that God is just. Jesus dies. He's perfect, sinless, dies for us in our place. And so God is just. God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over our former sins. What does this mean? Well, that's why in the Bible, it's not the Jews who are destroyed and killed and annihilated. Rather, it's God's only son, Jesus, who is. He's the one who hung on the cross to die for us. He's the only one that could do that so that God could be just because of our sin. But what do we do about the, being the justifier as well? Look at the next verse, verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be what? Just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so the only way, because of our sin, that God can be this good king, the perfect king, the only way he can settle the score and make things fair and give us things that aren't even fair to himself, to us, the only way he can do that is by coming and dying for us and making that right in our lives. He is the just because he's punished sin through Jesus, our past, present, future sin, and he's justified. He's the justifier because he's the one that saves us. Isn't that great? That's the, that's the good news of the gospel. That, that, is, that is your king. And so he is the one that we can give our signet ring to. Why? He can be trusted. He's the one that defeated sin, Satan, and death, the three enemies that we can't defeat. And so because of that, we can trust him. Because of that, he will see us to the end. Because of that, what he's started in us, he will bring to completion. Man, when we read stories like this and we think about Hitler in our, in, you know, in our, in our history and we think about what's going on now, I just read this report that says, you know what? Christians will be the minority by like 2050 or something like that. Did you guys read that story as well? And it's like, who says? Talking heads? Statisticians? Politicians? It's like our king, he gets the last word in everything. If you're just to look at the Esther story at that point, it looked like all the Jewish people are done with. But we know the rest of the story, don't we? If you would look at Christians right now in the world in which we live right now, it looks like futuristically we're kind of done with. Jesus said that the gates of hell won't prevail over his church. And so he's the one that's going to see us to the end. All that to say he is the better king. He is the one worthy of worship. He is the one worthy of giving all authority the signet ring of our life to. And so for that, we're just, we're grateful. He's the one that keeps, our, keeps his promises and sees us to the end. So now in this story, we're kind of left on this edge of, okay, in 11 months, all the Jewish people are going to be killed. What's going to happen next? You have to tune in next week and find out. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your love, grace, your mercy, your kindness. God, I think about the evil plot of Haman and just how demonic and just evil it looks. And we, we can look in the world around us and see so much just evil. And it just causes our hearts to scream, it's just not fair. Like, when will this evil 
uh, be gone, be, be, be banished from our lives and this world around us. And just to remind her that you've given us a promise that you will see us to the end and then you will make all things right in the end. And so, God, I just pray for us now today as a church that you would help us persevere to the end. You would sustain us. You would keep the enemy from us, keep his, his temptation and tactics at bay. And you would help see us to the end. And, Father, I just pray we do have authority to, to hand over our rights and to hand over our lives. And I pray that, um, that we wouldn't to the enemy. I pray that we wouldn't to others, that we'd only belong to you because you are the only one that can hold us. You're the only one that can sustain us. You're the only one that can see us to the end. So I just pray that we do that. I pray for my, my brother and sister here that just, just come in kind of limping and just dragging in right now because they're just taking a beating through the week, maybe by the enemy, maybe by evildoers, maybe by just, just life itself. God, would you refresh their soul today? Would you help them today? I pray, I pray for our, our marriages. I pray for our children the enemy wants nothing more than to steal, kill, and destroy. I just Even where the text says, get the women, get the children, get the, the men, get the old, get everyone. It just that the enemy's trying to pick us off left and right. God, would you protect us? I pray for my friends as well, God. People that come in here today and not know you as their king, as their savior. I pray today, God, you'd save them that you would give them faith to trust in you, the only good one that went to the cross for us, died for us, came back to life for us, that you beat sin, Satan, and death. I pray as you do your work today, God, it would just be for our good, that we might not see your hand, but we know that you're for our good. And may all that you do be for your glory in our lives. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.